Jesus said, it's more blessed to give and receive than to receive. And you know this. You know this. Those of you who've been Christians for any length of time, you know, you know, you cannot outgive God. It's just that when you become a Christian, when you do this walk with Christ, you you know, you know that that being a Christian is is about learning to live with life's paradoxes, right? You know, if you want to if you want to uh, receive, you're going to need to give. Uh, if you want to save your life, you got to surrender your life. If you want to lead, you got to serve. If you want to be first, you got to be. There's just paradoxes that we learn to live with. And this morning, I want to talk about another paradox. And it's this to wage war takes peace. It's a paradox. To wage war against the kingdom of darkness, to wage war against Satan, takes the gospel of peace. That's what I want to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and... We're going to be paying attention to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. Ephesians 6, 15 is in a paragraph that is subtitled. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 830. It's subtitled, The Armor of God. The Armor of God. The Apostle Paul is closing this magnificent letter to... uh, Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus. Paul himself, while he wrote this letter, we think around the year AD 61, Paul is in prison. Actually, the book of Acts, verse 20, uh, chapter 28 says, he's in, under house arrest for the gospel, jailed for Christ. He's appealed to Caesar. He can do that as a Roman citizen. So he's awaiting trial But he's not just idle. He's been writing letters. He wrote Philippians, he wrote Colossians, he wrote Philippians, and he writes Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, he talks about what God has done through Jesus Christ. He's created a new community, a new humanity, a new race. In Christ, all of the different races, tribes, nations, in Christ they become one race, One new humanity, one new society, one new people, the people of God. And Jesus is the one who's created this new race, and there's new life, and there's new relationships. It's new, a new in the way that there's never been a new before. And Paul impresses upon this church that they still have an enemy, and that enemy needs to be resisted. And you're not going to be able to resist him on your own. You need that which comes from God and thus the armor of God. God's own armor. God's own equipment. Now when you read about the armor of God, don't think that, okay, this is just another to-do list for me to do. No, no, no. This is not something for me to do. This is a provision for me to receive. 
This is a gift. God gifts to his, his people his equipment, his armor to stand firm against Satan because you're not fighting against flesh and blood. You're fighting against Satan, Satan himself. And so we've talked about the belt of truth, verse 14. We've talked about the breastplate of righteousness. And this week, we're going to talk about gospel shoes. Gospel shoes. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15 says, And as, for sh- as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The apostle Paul, chained to that Roman soldier, is looking at that fully uniformed Roman soldier and his eyes lock in on those soldiers' shoes. And he says, I want you to strap onto your feet gospel-fitted shoes. Gospel-fitted shoes. And what is that? What, what's Paul seeing when he looks into that Roman soldier? I want to talk about that. Do a little history lesson here this morning. But there's an image behind that, isn't there? And what is that image? What's the lesson that Paul's trying to teach us about these gospel-fitted feet? And we're going to talk about that. And then finally, before we leave here, we're going to ask the question, what would it look like with those shoes strapped onto my feet. So what, so what, now what? That's where we're going. Let's talk about the what first. Well, kind of, it's pretty obvious why Roman soldiers needed footwear back then. If you see on that picture there, you'll notice on the soles of those sandals that they were cleated. They were like hobnails. And so when you think of those sandals, I want you to think of three words. I want you to think of traction, protection, and mobility. Traction, protection, and mobility. Roman soldiers, the legions issued those Roman soldiers uh, uh, hobnailed or cleated or, or uh, uh, sandals that had metal teeth protruding out of the soles to give those soldiers traction. We know what that's all about in the different athletic sports we prefer, whether it's football or baseball. We know, but for the Roman soldier, traction was essential because it wasn't about winning or losing a game. It was about life or death. And those Roman soldiers realized, you know you cannot fight sitting down. You cannot fight on your back. And you cannot advance laying on your, on your stomach, you advance on your feet and you've got to move. And so the traction was there so that the soldier, not individually like out in left field, but as a legion, as a unit, they became an impenetrable wall because the Romans fought in columns and they advanced and the traction kept them on their feet because If you lose your footing, you're going to lose the fight. You lose your footing in war, then you will either be taken down by the enemy in front of you or you will be trampled by the legion, the thousands of soldiers following you. They're not going to stop just because you drop. You're moving. They're advancing. And you need traction. And those feet provided protection. Protection. Now, we know in Vietnam, 
that our soldiers were exposed to those deadly pungy sticks or those pungy pits that were traps. And once they fell, those sharpened bamboo could do a lot of damage. A superior opponent could, uh, you could quickly even the odds through those deadly pungy sticks. Well, that just didn't take place in Vietnam. That's been thousands and thousands of years of warfare. And the Roman soldiers, when those enemies saw the Roman soldier legions coming, they would take those pungy sticks, but they would take them. You couldn't see them in the ground. And if you did not have thick soles on your feet, then you were easy prey and you couldn't advance. And so the Leather soles protected those soldiers because if you can't march, you can't fight. Protection, traction, protection, and then mobility. See, traction and protection provides mobility. The legions got to be able to move. The legions got to be able to advance. And, And that's where the history lesson ends. The Apostle Paul is saying that when the gospel of peace is strapped to the feet of the Christian soldier that gives the Christian soldier traction as one and protection as one and then allows the people of God to move where the need exists to meet that need, to share materially, to share verbally the love of Christ. Because you see, gospel-fitted feet are not about sandals. No. No, putting the gospel on is not about putting on a pair of shoes. It's about putting on a person. You see, Jesus himself is the gospel of peace. Isn't that what the apostle Paul told us earlier in the book of Ephesians? Just turn back one page to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15 and 16. And by the way, the Bible is its own best interpreter. Best commentary in the Bible is the Bible. So when we wonder, okay, well, what is the gospel of peace? The gospel of peace is Christ himself. For he himself is our peace. Who has made the two, the two what? The two races. There's the Jewish race and the Gentile race. Jesus has made the two races one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Look at this. His purpose was to create in himself, here it is, the new race, the new humanity, one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, one race, one new humanity, to reconcile both of them to God. How's that going to happen? Through the cross. That's how. Through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus himself is our peace. See, the gospel of peace answers, you know, no matter what your background is, no matter uh, what your nation of birth, no matter what your race is, the gospel answers the question that's common to every tribe, every race, every nation, and it's simply this. How, how 
do guilty sinners find God? And the answer is they don't. They're lost. God's got to put on flesh and find them. And the gospel is he does. He does. You see, God's not going to just... God's not just going to swipe our sins underneath the rug and pretend it's not there. He's got to deal with it because he is committed to justice. And the gospel of peace says that on the cross, God treated Jesus like he would have treated me. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the justice of God. I've been helped uh, in my studies this week by a, a book I've been reading. It's called Vintage Jesus. Listen to this as it describes the cross. On the cross, Jesus was made to be the worst of what we are. This doesn't mean that Jesus sinned. It means that he was declared sin. He was made sin. On the cross, abandoned by God the Father, Jesus became the most ugly, wicked, defiled, evil, corrupt, rebellious, and hideous thing in all creation. On the cross, Jesus became the alcoholic. On the cross, Jesus became the abortionist. On the cross, Jesus became the thief, the glutton, the addict, the pervert, the adulterer, the coveter, the murderer, the liar, the idol worshiper, the whore, the pedophile, the self-righteous religious prig, and whatever else we are. Jesus became that on the cross. On the cross, Jesus exchanged his perfection for our imperfection his obedience for our disobedience, his intimacy with the Father for our distance from the Father, his blessing for our cursing. On the cross, Jesus traded his life for our death. The cross cost Jesus everything. The cross cost us nothing. The cross. And that's why he's our peace. He is our peace because the justice of God made war on his body. And that's why we can sing, church. That's it. That's the gospel. I was thinking about a quote this week by a pastor uh, from New York named Tim Keller. Tim Keller has said, every good story is about the gospel. Every good story. Every good story is about the gospel. See, how do you mean? Well, think about it. Think about the movies that just resonate. Huh? Uh, uh, think about the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan. Uh, think about, the, uh, there was a movie uh, years back with uh, Richard Gere and Jodie Foster, Summersby. Gladiator, The Lion King, The Matrix, Lord of the Rings, Saving Private Ryan. Well, well, what's, what's the thread with those stories? The thread of those stories is the gospel. The gospel. An innocent Sufferer laying down his life for others. That's the gospel. Think about the classic novels, The Tale of Two Cities. What's the connection? The connection is that it's gospel, that someone is surrendering their life. Someone is taking a bullet for someone else. Someone is surrendering themselves, their lives, so that someone else can live. Jesus himself describes the gospel. When he says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is our peacemaker. Jesus is our peacemaker. But that's just not the gospel. 
It's not. Because the gospel is not just that Jesus died for our sins. That's not, that's not all the gospel, is it? All of the gospel is that Jesus died, that he was buried in what? That by the power of God, to vindicate all that Jesus had said and done. God raised his son from the dead. And that's why Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, when Paul, when, when Paul says that Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away. He's talking about the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish of, of, of descent, the, you who are far away and preached peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, while Paul's looking at that Roman soldier, when Paul wrote those words in Ephesians 2, 17 and 18, he's also thinking, because he was a rabbi, his Old Testament heritage, he's also thinking of Isaiah 52, 7. Isaiah 52, 7 says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him which brings good tidings who publish peace. He's thinking about that. And I read that and I'm thinking, that's nice. What does that mean? I mean, that's a really nice churchy phrase, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, there's a picture in Paul's mind. There's a picture there that's being painted. And the picture is this. In the ancient city, when the city's army was off at war, you know, they didn't have CNN back then. They didn't have ESPN. And they didn't have the Golf Channel. How did they make it? They didn't have any of that. How are they going to get news from the battlefront? They got to wait for a messenger. That's how. So they're on top of the city wall, and they're looking out on the horizon, on the ridge, waiting for the messenger to come, waiting for news of the battle. Are we going to have to pay tribute, or did the king win? And there on the horizon, they see a messenger, and the messenger comes, and the messenger is running, and the messenger gets within earshot of the city, and the messenger shouts at the top of his voice, peace, peace, and that means victory. We won. The commander is in charge. Peace, peace means victory. That's exactly, only here, Paul says that he came and preached peace. Who's he? Jesus. A corporal wasn't sent to deliver the news. Paul says that the commander-in-chief himself arrived with news. Peace, I have won. I have conquered Satan. He has been defeated. Satanic powers are irresistible. I have pacified them. I have overcome them. I am in charge. I am the king. I am the commander. I am unstoppable. That's the news, not from a corporal, but from the commander-in-chief himself. He came to preach peace. That's why, church family, in, in Luke chapter 24 and in John chapter 20, when Christ appeared for 40 days after the resurrection, Christ appeared 
To say, I've conquered Satan. I'm alive. People saw him. They touched him. It was a bodily resurrection. That's why. And, and that's why in those chapters, when Jesus appears, Luke 24, John 20, that's why when he appears, he appears by saying, peace be with you. And it doesn't mean, yeah, man, peace. Yeah, peace, love, and joy. That doesn't mean, no, not that. It means victory. I've won. Your God reigns. You see, Jesus is our peacemaker. And Jesus is the peace messenger. He's the peace messenger. And then, did you notice in John chapter 20, 21, did you notice this? It says, Jesus said, peace be with you. And then he says this, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I'm sending you now. You're my people. One new race. Now you're going to be the messenger of news, the good news. And just before Jesus ascended to heaven, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And, and he said that and then he ascended. Jesus, the peacemaker, Jesus, the peace messenger. And, and here it is. Just before Jesus ascended back to heaven, you know what he does? He kicks off his shoes. Yeah, he does. And he says, here, put these on. These are for you to wear. They'll fit you. Strap them on. They'll give you traction. They'll give you protection. They'll give you mobility. I want you to, I want you to go out to all the world. We're not, we're not converging on Jerusalem anymore, okay? Instead, it's the other way around. We're going global. It's going to start in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that includes Champaign, Illinois. And I want you to strap these on. And I want you to, because the way to make war on the darkness of Satan is through the gospel of peace. And these shoes are the gospel of peace, the message of the peacemaker and the peace messenger who now sends us. Oh, yeah. And you know what? In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, the New Testament tells us Satan can't stand the gospel. He's irresistible before the gospel. It says in Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him. Who's they? That's us, God's people. They overcame him. Who's him? Satan, the accuser, the devil. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. That's the message uh, of peace. That's the peacemaker. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's the message right there. The testimony of what? The testimony of the gospel. God wants us to gossip the gospel. 
God wants us to take the gospel out. He wants us to share, not only materially, but verbally. He wants us to put, the, he wants us to put a good word in because he sent us and commissioned us to do that. Huh. And Satan can't stand that. His kingdom quakes when the message of the gospel goes out. And that's why Paul says, I don't care if I'm chained to a Roman guard. He says in Philippians 1, I may be chained, but the gospel's not chained. That poor guard doesn't stand a chance. Chained to the apostle, he's going to hear about the news. Wherever Paul is, that's where he's going to share Christ, you see. But here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. How many of us How many Christians, how many churches, how many pastors are absolutely terrified to share their faith? How many of us are just, Lord, you know, I'll come to church more, I'll tithe more, and so we end up horse trading with God, right? I'll tithe more, I'll get involved in a small group, I'll collect clothes. Just don't ask me to put in a good word, please. I mean, just, you know, we just, I just, and and, and this goes on and on and on, And, and as a result, then we... We, we feel spiritually stalled. And you know, we took a survey this last fall called Reveal. Some of you took it online. Many of you took it online. We found out that some of you are really growing in your walk with Christ, but others of us are, you said, I'm spiritually stalled. A significant percentage, a percentage high enough to get our attention. And, and let me just take it a little bit more. You're stalled enough that you're even thinking right now. You may be here today. You're thinking right now, you know what? I'm going to leave this church. Wow. Wow, what's going on? Well, you know what? I'm trying to figure that out. Maybe some of it's something that we need to own as leaders. And how can we be better at leading and pastoring and shepherding? How can we do that? But can I just suggest something? that maybe one of the reasons why that you're feeling stalled in your faith, it's not because you're not coming to church, because we're here. Not because you're not giving, we're giving. Not because you're not in a small group. It's not because you're not uh, uh, serving. Maybe, let me ask this question. When was the last time you've had a spiritual conversation with someone about Jesus? Whether family or neighbor or colleague, when was the last time? When was the last time you've, you've, you've stepped out of your comfort zone? You've, you've entered the zone of the unknown and you've ventured to have a spiritual conversation with someone, huh? You know what? I find myself, I have got to be very, very intentional about that in my life. And you know why, don't you? I work with Christians all week. I go home. Everybody in my house is a Christian. Okay? (laughs) And if I'm not careful, it's easy for me. It's easy for me. To find myself, weeks have gone by and I'm just kind of feeling spiritually sluggish. And why is that? It's because, man, I have not had a substantial spiritual conversation with someone who wants to have a spiritual conversation or I haven't engaged in just living with someone who, you know, you need to have unchurched friends. That's what I'm saying. And this is so important that, uh, well, this is a whole, this, this whole topic is a, is a sermon series, and uh, oh, I'm excited to talk to you about this 
Uh, and I'm sorry that it's a series that's going to take place in about four and a half months because we're still planning the details of it. But when you get back in the new school year, we're going to have a new series called Contagious. And it's going to be about talking about just how to become more natural about having spiritual conversations. And we're partnering with Urbana Theological Seminary. We're going to bring in an excellent trainer, a guy by the name of Gary Poole. And uh, we're going to get these shoes strapped on tightly. Um, okay, but what about now? I want to share with you just a, a, just a verse that I hope will help us become more natural at sharing our faith. And it's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, we loved you so much, listen to this, that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. What's that say? It says that Paul didn't view those folks as projects. He loved them. He not only wanted to share the message, but he wanted to share his life with them. He wanted to be with them. If you want to influence an unchurched person, you've got to be where they are so that you can build the kind of credible relationship that will allow you to engage in a spiritual conversation in a way that is natural. So we don't view folks who don't know Christ as, 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 as just projects to be conquered, but as people to be loved. And we spend our time with them, and our conversations become natural. Well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the kind of natural conversations that we had Friday morning. That's what I'm talking about. Huh? You remember the conversation you had Friday morning? Did you feel it? Huh? I felt it. Did you feel it? Yeah, I felt it. Wow. You know, no, I didn't feel it. I was <laughs> zoned out. That's <laughs> Tylenol PM. I'm done. Right? That's it. You know, I don't know that anybody, I don't know that anybody felt like they were being imposed upon by anybody else's earthquake experience. Right? You just shared what's common. And so I'm just going to say, I want to live with you and do life with you long enough so that, and the opportunity will come. And then you say, well, yeah, but what if, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? Here's what you say. You say, I don't know. Okay? Let's all say that on three. One, two, three. I don't know. Just say, I don't know. Say, say I don't know. I'll find out. See? And unchurched folks, they're not going to be turned off because you don't. In fact, they're going to be, be pleased because <laughs> you're not trying to bluff them. And you go back and you find the answer to the whatever question they have and then you... And you come back, and then you have another opportunity to share with them. You have another opportunity to spend time with them, and, you're, and you find yourself putting on the gospel of peace, you see. We wage war against the darkness by putting on the gospel of peace. I just want to close by asking you two questions here, church. And the first question is this. Do I really believe that the gospel do I truly believe that the gospel is as real in my life as that earthquake was on Friday? Do I? And do people in my life see Christ's peace in my life? Because you can't share what you don't have. You can't. And then secondly, are you willing to pray? Pray, Father God, would you please give me an opportunity today 
to put in a good word for you. Just, just give me an opportunity to put in a good word for you. Just whatever that word might be, to put in a good word for you. Paul prayed about that, didn't he? Look, he's an apostle. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should pray. Be careful what you pray for too. Yeah. God will answer this prayer. And when he answers that prayer, we'll be waging war with the gospel of peace. I stay near the door. I stay near the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which we walk when we find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside. And they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. I stay near the door. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it, so I stay near the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for us to find that door, the door to God. And the most important thing anyone can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to one's own touch. People die outside that door as starving beggars die On cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, they die for lack of what is within their grasp. They live, though, on the other side of it. They live because they found it, the door. So nothing else matters. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stay near Lord Jesus Christ, you are our peace. Thank you for making peace so that we can be as one family and as one family reconciled to the Father. Thank you. Thank you that you yourself proclaimed that peace. And thank you that you've given that privilege, that privilege to us. Help us proceed protected and mobile because you are strapped tightly to our lives.